0: There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better
1: way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 2nd, 2017, and this is episode two thousand. And 15 of the Survival Podcast is a good one today, man, for a lot of reasons. Uh, History segment today, we will catch up to current time. We won't do a 2017 history segment in 2017 because it's not done yet. Um, And Alex has crossed the finish line of a marathon. We're going to have a special shout out for him today. Uh, But the rest of the show is about what it is all about you and the expert council because it's Friday, 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 that's right, it is time for the Monster Show of the Week, and boy do I have some great stuff lined up for you today. Let me tell you what I got in queue for you. I have marketing a niche business locally, specifically a martial arts business, from Nicole Sauce. I have two different takes on macular degeneration between Doc Bones and Gary Collins. They're not in opposition to each other. The truth is, I don't flip and even know what either one, I purposely did not listen to them I will be listening to them as they are integrated into the show today, and it's not like a competition. It was just like, I think both of these guys will have a take. One is an MD, one of more of like a natural health person who has worked in the FDA, and they they might have totally different takes or similar takes. It'd be just cool to hear from both of them. Actually, Bones kind of piked on me for a while. They were traveling, and uh, I've been waiting to use Gary's now for two weeks because I wanted them together, so we'll have that today. I have... Dealing with ants in your beehives. Um, I won't be able to help much with the ones that are in your hive. I think Michael Jordan will really handle that, but it's, it's about killing them. It's about killing them, and that's what he's going to tell you. And I'll give you my thoughts on killing the old bastards myself. Uh, I got a pretty good way to do it that'll actually make your soil better. Uh, keeping your money relatively safe with John Pugliano. I've had this is a conglomerate question. Quite a few people have written in with different versions of the same thing. Freaking out, worried, and it's always people that. They didn't ever, they've never had money in their life. And then through inheritance or some kind of windfall, now they're looking at a big pile of money and they're not sure what to do with it. And they're afraid to just like put it in the bank until they figure it out because the bank's going to explode or whatever. John's going to talk about that and tell you why you don't need to be as worried as you think you do. Um, Stephen Harris will talk about charging batteries. Well, big deal. Stephen Hart, Harris always talks about charging batteries. How about on an 18 day hike over hundreds of miles? And trying to keep you know, not just your cell phone working, but a GPS that tells people where the hell you are in case something goes wrong with you. Steve will talk about that with us today, which will be a great one for all of us. And considerations when buying a car via CarMax from Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic. And then I'll take an interesting question from someone that says, Jack, you say tax is theft, but is mandatory insurance theft and is... Insurance, where society's been set up where you gotta have it, even though there's not a law that says you gotta have it, theft, i.e., is insurance a form of tax and therefore theft? And the answer is some, and others no. And we'll talk about why that's important to understand. If we actually want to move toward a more voluntary society, because it doesn't mean things like insurance would just go away. It doesn't mean that there wouldn't be, well, we'll save it till we get to the segment. All of that more just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, business owners, would you like the ability to reach more than 100,000 TSP community members for as little as $5 a year? If so, consider advertising your business in the TSP Business Directory. A listing in our directory shows your support of the community and a commitment to value-for-value value exchange with other members. To find something or to be found, just check out the directory at tspbiz.com. That's tspbiz.com dot com to learn more. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep five to 10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out JMBullion.com to learn more. And with that, let's take a look at the history segment, the year 2016, which was just last year because the episode is 2016. And I think this is actually a really good thing. How many times do you refer to last year as being history? We've lost touch with that, that like today will be history tomorrow. That means get working on you, Dash. So what I'm going to do with this one, since so this is the final one of of, of, of this run anyway, there, I'm talking to South Pop Bed about what comes next after the history segment, and there's a couple different options, and it's all on him. Uh, but I don't want to read all three segments today, kind of as a, a finish here. So I'm only going to read a few of the bullet points. I'm going to read notable deaths. Antonin Scalia died at 79. Of course, that set up the whole debate over the Supreme Court. Uh, with Trump actually putting a, a a damn good looking conservative on the bench from a standpoint of that, um, best you're going to get under the circumstances, I think. I, I'll give Trump that one. Nancy Reagan died of age 94 uh, of age at age 94 of congestive heart failure. Gene Wilder died at 83 of Alzheimer's, comedic actor in Blazing Saddles, Willy Wonka, the Chocolate Factory. Uh, he kept his disease private because he didn't want to sadden his younger fans, uh, and a lot of really important people like John Glenn, Fidel Castro, and Eli Weissel. And a lot of people who entertained us, like Prince at age 57 of an overdose, David Bowie, age 69, liver cancer, and Muhammad Ali of septic shock at age 74 after respiratory illness. And that list could go on a really, really long time. Um, One of the things I wanted to read to you, it seems like unimportant, but I have a unique take on it out of the bullet points here. Uh, This year in TV, Al Jazeera America shuts down, citing low ratings. It began with 7,000 viewers in primetime, Building to over 17,000. That seems unimportant and it's Al Jazeera and blah, 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 blah. I, I, I think the take on this needs to be completely different for you to understand the opportunity that exists for you in the world today. So, they start out with 7,000 viewers, they build up to 17,000 viewers and they are a failure. Why? Because it's television. What do you call a person with 17,000 dedicated followers with an online business? You call them a successful entrepreneur. That's called the long tail, folks. Understand it and grasp it. You do not, now that doesn't mean if you have 17,000 subscribers on, a, on a, a YouTube channel that you can retire. That doesn't mean that. 17,000 people that really are paying attention to you, and out of that 17,000, there's about 1,000 of them or 1 17th that are true devoted fans, that when they have the opportunity to support you, they will. You have, at that point, about three median av- average salaries coming out of your business. Now, it's not all money you'll keep because there's expenses and things like that, but you're there. What is failure on TV is now success for you in the world of the internet due to the long tail. I just wanted to point that out today because it's a Friday and we should be thinking about our weekend coming up and relaxing. Yeah. But, you know, hitting the world again, hard charging. Or for some of us that are already figured out what we want to do that are still working jobs, man, this weekend is going to be when you can really put your, your, your shoulder to the grindstone and work on those things. And you only have to do it for so long before you're successful. I just want to point that out. So let's look at the uh, segments today from Alex and and Ben. First, we have getting the lead out of Flint, Michigan's water supply from Alex Shrugged. President Obama declares a state of emergency in Flint, Michigan. Lead levels in the water supply have already poisoned many children who will never be well again. How did it happen? Flint was close close to bankruptcy, so the governor assigned a manager over the city. One of the cost-saving measures he dictated was to use Flint's old water treatment plant to process river water rather than buy treated water from Detroit. It was a good idea, but treating river water is tricky. They made a mistake and failed to add an anti-corrosive chemical to the water. Then when they discovered that too much bacteria in the water, they added extra chlorine. This rusted out the city's iron pipes and turned the water orange, but it also flaked out the protective coating inside the lead pipes. Lead dissolved into the water, so did the city fix the problem once it was brought to attention? No. They denied it was a problem. How about when the EPA director was informed of the problem? No. State of Michigan, forget it. No one wanted to go out on a limb for Flint, so somebody actually wrote that in a memo. After 18 months of protest, scientific studies, and medical studies in the state of Michigan, finally switches Flint back to Detroit water, but the damaged pipe must be replaced. Obama's declaration opens up funding for that. My take by Alex Shrugged, but Alex, surely this was an isolated case. No, it isn't. Washington DC two thousand one there were indications that lead levels in drinking water were rising, and the reaction by government was the same. I'm not blaming Republicans or Democrats. I'm blaming the freaking bureaucrats and government paid scientists who tried to cover their asses. He didn't say it that way I did. Anyway, who disagreed was anyone who disagreed was moved out, discredited, or threatened with a loss of funding. Even the CDC said that lead really wasn't hurting the children. Yeah, these are the same people that tell you that vaccines are completely safe. Jesus. I mean, come on, people. Come on. The CDC said lead really wasn't hurting your children. I'd like to get these, I'd like to get the prick. I shouldn't be doing this in the middle of the last issue, but I'd like to get the prick at the CDC that said that. And I'd like to get a big old glass full of lead laced water and hold them down and pour that shit down his throat and tell him I'll be back tomorrow and I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it because it's not really going to hurt you. What a prick. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <sighs> <sighs> Assuming that there is a politician out there who wants to make the right decision, what can we do when scientists won't stick their neck out to give him an honest answer? I recommend watching the NOVA episode, Poisoned Water, that aired on May 31, 2017. It will re-air on PBS for the rest of the week, and perhaps there is someone out there who sells a water filter that will take the lead out, even if your government assures you everything is okay. Hmm, let me think. Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, for those of you that don't know yet. Um, I just want to point out that um, if scientists will lie about lead in the water and anybody that says, hey, hey, there's lead in the water will be you know, silenced, discredited, fired, and defunded, which we, we know happened here, they just might do that over global warming. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, anyway, let's go on. We have one now from Southpaw Ben. This is the outsider you were looking for with a Jedi handwave. Contributed by Southpaw Ben. This year, in an election filled with intrigue and more mudslinging than ever before, Donald Trump becomes President-elect of the United States to the fanfare of many and to the horror of just as many. He crashes right through the blue wall to victory, winning four states that previously had always voted Democrat. My take by Southpaw Ben. Saturday Night Live does an amazing satirization of election night, showing a stereotypical city apartment of Hillary supporters absolutely positive that Hillary won the election already, then follows through the night. As the title suggests, I don't think that Trump is the outsider his supporters say he is, nor is he the evil incarnate, is his opponents impo- impo- claim. Yeah, I think he's just a guy that thought he could win and did. And uh, he, he's not going to change as much as you think, and he's probably going to govern pretty clearly pretty much like a typical Republican president would. When he pulled out of the power of the court, heck, he said he would. I mean, if there's anything to say for Trump, whether you agree with it or not, he's doing the crap he said he would do as long as it's doable. Um, anyway, I want to read the final segment from Alex Shrugged. Alex Shrugged has left the building. Wow. It's been a really great one. run. It began when Jack Spierko had the idea of linking the episode number for his show with a few thoughts about history for that year. The year that was the episode. As a history buff, I loved the idea, but I knew it would be a lot of work. So I started sending emails about history to help him out. Then it became more formal. I started posting to the TSP Wiki and became part of the show. And I have Jack to thank for it. I can do a lot of things on my own without prompting, but I would not have done the history segment on my own. That's the truth. He lent me his forum so that I can speak to all of you using his voice, and I am grateful. I'm also grateful to Southpaw Ben, who stepped in just at right the right time when I was sick and getting overwhelmed. There is so much to learn from history, but the mistake is to believe that we can go back to those times if only this or that changed. There is no going back. There is only going forward. However, there are times when an opportunity presents itself again. If we know our history, we have a good idea of what will happen next. Or, as the old joke goes, those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it, and those who do study history are doomed to watch others repeat it. I have taken the, long, the, walk, the watch long enough, Thank you for your trust, Alex Shrugged. My take by Southpaw Ben. Thank you for everything you've done for this community, Alex. Your segment has always been one of my favorite parts of the show, and I hope to do justice to your legacy as I go back to year 1 AD and hopefully fill in this segment up to when you started the segment. So that's what's going to go on now. Ben's going to go back to the year 1 AD, and bring. we're going to bring it up till we catch up to where Alex started. And I thought it would be a good tribute to Alex today to... uh To talk real quick about when he started, what year was it? Does anybody remember? The year 1258. Alex Shrug chronicled history for us from the year 1258 to the year 2016. 2016. Um, That means that Alex contributed to 758 episodes of the Survival Podcast. 758 going through 758 years of history for us. And I think Southpaw Ben will find, as he goes back to the year 1 AD, much as Alex did in those really early years, the history segments are going to be a lot shorter because there's not as much recorded, and a lot of it may not seem as relevant as it would be uh, today as it might have been if it was 100 years ago, for instance. But I think it'll be great to have uh, Southpaw Ben uh, working on this. And if anybody else is kind of a history buff out there, uh, this was a monumentous thing for Alex to do, and he carried the weight for about 758 years, about 700 of them on his back alone. Uh, ben, I think, is pretty excited about this, but he may find it's a lot of work, and if anybody else out there wants to contribute, remember, you don't apply for this. This is the wiki. The TSP wiki is a duocracy, and uh, I'm sure he would enjoy your support and your help uh, by making contributions and things like that. Anyway, just a huge, 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 thank you to alex shrugged because this was a service this was a service to your fellow man and it was a service to this community and i'm sure it brought you a lot of value yourself because you were challenged by something you met it and that's good for us to always be doing and it is now a good time for a rest from that and to figure out what it is you want to do next with the time you've been dedicated to this but we all thank you for your service alex to us really huge service thank you sir want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got A return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a hundred percent return on your investment from day one. First, you get a uh, free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vic Rontala sells that every day for forty nine bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. Okay, but before we do get into uh, your first question for the expert counsel, I wanted to uh, just let you guys know that I put out a pretty cool little video this morning. Uh, I've been looking for a place to to catch a lot of uh, bullhead catfish. And uh, it it hadn't been actually really easy to find. First of all, I've been working so much this year, I hadn't had a lot of time to fish in the first place. And I've picked up a few here and there. I even went down to an old honey hole down in uh, Arlington that just didn't produce. Uh, But I found a place less than 15 minutes from my house that's loaded with them. So I brought about, I think, 10 home last night and popped them into one of the aquaponics tanks. And uh, we're going to build those up. Um, I'm hoping to go out again this afternoon, but it looks like it might actually rain. And if it actually rains, I'm going to be unhappy that I, I can't go fishing. Because it's like it looks like if it rains, it's going to, like, not that misty stuff, like, rain. Uh, but I'll be so happy, I won't care. Um, and, uh, it might rain tomorrow too. Um, but if it, if it doesn't or gives us a window, my buddy David and I might bust out to this place and we're going to keep bringing more bullheads into it and it'll start giving us more material. And I wanted to remind you, not only to maybe take a look at this video, but that we have a little website that I set up that is just a little blog and it probably going to get posted to about once or twice a month. Um, but it's called bullheadfishing.com. And I, I just want it to be a resource for people that want to pursue this particular fish I think the bullhead is a maligned fish that, that is, offers a lot to people from a sustainable, a sustainable fish, uh, standpoint. People say, well, they taste like mud. Well, I don't know where you're getting your bullheads from or what you're doing to them or how you're overcooking them or what. They eat shit. No, they don't eat shit. That's not what they eat. They eat minnows and, and, and perch mostly, by the way. Anyway, um, I, have I've come up with a really great way of cleaning them. Actually, I found somebody online with a really great way to clean them. Uh, I'll be adding videos on that to this site. Um, you know, yesterday's video was just, uh, put them in. I found an article on a great way to keep them from, uh, swallowing the hook, which is a problem with bullheads, especially if you're trying to catch them for use in aquaponics systems. Um, that may or may not work, but I'm gonna go out and try it this weekend if I get dry weather, and I have the article ready to go, and I'll just amend it if I actually get to try it and say now I know it works. It's not just a theory guy that made a little video about uh, basically using jig heads so they don't swallow the whole thing down, and we'll see if it hurts your yeah. hookup rate or knocks down your number of hits or anything like that or, or what have you, but I'm going to just keep adding little bits of information. It's not going to be a major side. I'm not going to put sponsors on or nothing, but I would like to get it to rank for bullhead fishing, and I've I've done... Uh, what I can at this point. I don't have time to be out turning up a bunch of links and making deals or something like that with this one because uh, it's not a business. But what I would appreciate, if any of y'all would do this, if you have a blog that's anything outdoors, sports, any place where it wouldn't be out of place, if you could just embed in a post or on your blog roll or something the words Bullhead Fishing and link to bullheadfishing.com. And uh, that is the website. It's Again, it's called bullheadfishing.com. Um I, I really kinda wanna build this thing up as again, just a little resource sitting out there for people. It not a commercial thing, but I will do this for you. If you give me a link and send me an email with T S P C Bullhead in the subject line, say here's where I link to you. Uh, and you tell me a place you'd like to link to a link back to you, I'll pick I have a bunch of sites. I'm not going to say it's going to be on TSP. It may or may not, depending. But I will pick uh, one of my sites, and I will give you a link back for whatever anchor term you want. And I will do it on a uh, – Bullhead Fishing is on what we call our, our, our small server. Uh, it's not the one that serves up this main site and all the audio. And so it's more like a backup server, so it'll be on a totally different – block of IPs. It won't be a reciprocal link. Some of you know what that means. That just means that your link will have more power. It won't look incestuous to Google. So again, the site is bullheadfishing.com. It's got a little forum on it, about five blog posts on it since I put it up a few months ago. Um, It's not fancy or anything, but I I would appreciate the linkage and I will return it if, uh, if you so desire. Uh, again, just email me, jack, uh, at thesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC bullhead in the subject line. Everybody else, check this thing out. I need to get a subscription form on there so people can get email updates when I post and stuff like that. I ain't done it yet, but uh the forum's there. You can join the forum. It's not real active, but uh the reason it ain't active is there ain't enough people in it yet. And uh, post your stuff about bullheads and catching them and cooking them and all that other stuff. I will say this. I did not put the picture on Facebook yet, but um when I caught those fish yesterday, I gut-hooked one deep. I mean Deep down in the guts. And I knew it wasn't going to make it. And when I brought him home, he was alive but just kind of floating in the tank. So I went ahead and used this new uh, method called shucking to clean him. And this morning, I just rolled him in a little... I uh, cut little slits in the side of him uh, so he would firm up and cook the grease out of him because they do have some fat in him. And uh, I rolled him in a little bit of flour. I mean, I didn't even dredge it or anything. Just, just you know, damp fish and rolled it into a little bit of flour, salt, and pepper and uh, just pan-fried that sucker in some olive oil for about two minutes each side. <laughs> if you think bullheads aren't good eating, you don't know how to cook. That's all I can say. So check out this site. We'll have more stuff like that coming on it. With that, let's go ahead and get into your first question for an expert council member. Um, I have a question here for Nicole Sauce, her first time at bat as an expert council member. She's from Living Free and Tennessee podcast and other things. And she's going to talk about marketing a niche business locally, again, in this case, a martial arts business. Nicole, take it away.
2: Hello, TSP. This is Nicole Sauce answering a question from Mike from Lynchburg. Mike asks, how can I attract people to a private lesson-based martial arts small business? Details. I'm a New Hampshire martial artist that has moved to Lynchburg, Virginia. While there is competition for sports-based martial arts and some traditional styles like karate, there are no schools with a practical focus on self-defense, and I'd like to bridge that gap. I would like to build the business organically, though, doing private lessons, and if I make enough money, eventually pick uh, out a brick-and-mortar location. So how do I attract people to the idea of practical self-defense, martial arts, and private lessons in the individual's home? I'm currently building a website. It's not done. And a Facebook page link here. By the way, the link didn't come through, so if you want to shoot me the link, I'll gladly email you back. Um, any advice from you would be from, fantastic. Sincerely, Mike from Lynchburg. Well, Mike, good for you. You're starting a business. That's the best time to ask a question like this. I think the most important thing is not to get too bogged down in the what ifs and the I can'ts. And Anytime you run into a what if or an I can't, all you need to do is like identify that it's happening and then ask yourself, is this what if or I can't stopping my progress right now? If the answer is no, forget about it. Do I need to deal with it? Okay, so if it is hindering your progress, then deal with it, right? So if if you don't need to deal with it, if you can put it off, don't deal with it. But if it is something you need to take care of, like, oh, say you know, filing your quarterly taxes or something, my least favorite thing to do, at least one of them. Um, Then you deal with it and move on. But a lot of times at the beginning of a business idea like this, you're thinking already, you know, you've got your website to do, you've got to find clients, you have to figure out how you're going to have water and cookies or whatever it is that has to be part of the package. And it can become easy to get scared or overwhelmed with too many things. And so this brings us to my first Piece of advice which is this early in a business all you have right now is an idea and this is your best time to dream big so I would say set some time aside by yourself and think about like if this is wildly successful what's it going to look like like in three five years like how is this going to be when I am wildly successful and then out of that choose one thing what do I mean by that well The one thing you choose at this point is the one thing you need to do really, 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 really well in order for your business to grow to your dream. And once you have that one thing, you want to also identify what makes your classes better than everybody else's. And you've already put some thought to that because you're wanting to bridge the gap between traditional martial arts and practical self-defense Now, you did say something in there that I was, I kind of heard, and it was saying that you want to grow it organically through doing private lessons, um, and then moving from there, and I'm thinking self-defense in somebody's home, if they're motivated by fear to take your classes, they may not want to bring somebody into their home. Just, it's a weird, it was my first thought, like if I... I'm not sure I'd want to bring a big accomplished dude into my house to teach me self-defense if I was coming from a place of fear. So that's just something to think about. And when I read that, I thought, you know, there are gyms all over the place, especially with CrossFit taking off. Like they may let you use their facility or you may be able to do a, like a larger class or borrow or rent a room where you can do private lessons without them having to be at the home So that it's easier for people to say, you know what, I'm just going to give this a shot and I'll get to know them and then decide. And then there are going to be people who totally love that you'll come to their house because they don't want to drive all over the gosh darn town. Right. So anyway, back to the one thing, though, once you have your one thing and this is, again, the one thing you have to do really, really well and package it with what is different about you than everybody else, write it down. Write it down efficiently, and once you have that, rewrite it in terms of how your new clients will perceive your brand rather than what you give them. So what you're giving them is martial arts class, but what do they get? So I have an example for you. My one thing with hollow Roast Coffee is that I deliver a premium, great-tasting coffee done by me and by hand, so it's it's got that extra care, but... That's all about me. Who cares about me, right? So when I present my coffee to potential clients, what I want them to perceive is that hollow roast coffee is a simple way to pamper yourself so that your day starts out well, no matter how hard the rest of it will be. It's a simple way to treat yourself to something good. So you see how what I'm doing is roasting good coffee, but what the client gets is an affordable and simple way to pamper themselves. So think about your business in those terms. What what you're doing is bridging the gap from traditional martial arts to um, self-practical self-defense, but what do they get? Are you giving them confidence? Are you giving them um, just the ability to defend their families? Are you giving them peace of mind? There's like, think about that for a while. But back to that first thing I said about not getting bogged down, Thinking about what your client gets can take days. I've done workshops for three days with groups just to come up with that one sentence. So you don't want to do that right now, right? You need to, you need to get out there and start your classes. So what I would do is also set a timer, set a timer for an hour, frame it as best you can, and when that hour is over, you're done. Because What's going to happen as you test drive your business and test drive the uh, seeking of clients is you're going to refine that over time. I find it very helpful at this stage in the business to find a friend who who I trust and talk to them back and forth for that hour as we try to just rifle out what does the client get from me so that you know what your one thing is and you know what the one thing is they get. And every time you communicate, you can then come back to that. And then... Finally, this is probably the most important piece of advice right now, and it comes from a shoe factory from my hometown. Just do it. Get out there and offer a free class or something to, and promote the heck out of, it, out of it through like flyers, online groups in your community, any way you can get the word out to get some people into a room taking a class from you. If you can do it at a gym, like a CrossFit gym or something, that'll let you rent their facility. Like just get some people in there and do it one time because that is the most important thing right now is getting it there getting the people there and then talk to them afterwards and find out what they got from you because that is going to be what feeds your your fire and if you get people in there and they love it make it clear it's a one time free deal for this class and from here on out here's how you here's how you hire me to to do this in the future, or as Jack would say, don't hate money. So make it so they can buy from you at that free class. Make it clear they're getting it one time, and then ask them for referrals. And yes, get your website up and running and start producing some content on there about what you're doing. And that's why you wanted to find that one thing at the beginning, because once your website's up, it's very easy to get distracted and start posting all these things that may or may not help drive business but at this point what you want to do is everything you're doing is supporting the one thing that's driving the business so that you can build your your buzz basically in your community and get people excited about it so that you're teaching self-defense as a full-time job, hopefully, right? Or maybe you're dreaming even bigger than that. I don't know. Um, Make your content relevant to your one thing that you've defined every time you post. So no matter what you're talking about, look at it at the end and think, okay, but does this support the one thing I bring to my client? And if it does, then you know, it's a good post. If it doesn't think about how you can adjust it and you can do this in writing, you can do a podcast, you can do vid, like however you want to create content, start creating some content. I like to set a schedule of, um, once a week at first to do a post and then also support that on social networks like Facebook or whatever. And then, that with that regularity and by the way usually at the beginning when I start a business it's once a week for three weeks and then I fall off the planet for a few weeks and then I get back on my feet because it takes a while to work into my life Um, and that's if you're working a full-time job and doing this that might also happen Um, so that's it we'll just review real quick for those who are listening out there in TSP the first thing is try not to get bogged down in all this stuff and When you do, learn to let the things go that are not important to your one thing. The second thing is define your one thing and then frame it in terms of the benefit that your clients get from you. And then lastly, get out there and get started because once you do one class, you're going to know. It's going to tell you how you need to start talking about your story and why people working with you are getting a much better service than just a simple traditional martial arts class. Well, folks, if you like what you've heard, you can check out my podcast over at livingfreeintennessee.com or just grab it through your podcast app. Mike, thank you for your question, and Jack, thanks for everything you do for our TSP community. All of you have been great to get to know, and your support on my Kickstarter last week really helped put us over the line. Okay, everyone, go out, make it a great weekend.
1: So, Nicole Saw steps up to her first at-bat as an expert council member, and what happens? This happens. This happens. Indeed. I'd call that answer a home run. Uh, how lucky we are to have Nicole with us on the expert council. And I'm, I'm excited to, to have expanded, I guess you'd call the female energy because, uh, you know, Erica Strauss is no longer a lone gal on the council. And, uh, I think this is just great, and uh, she brings a lot of diversity of knowledge to the council as well. And a different take on, on questions that I've been answering for a long time, and I think that's important too. Well done. Uh, keep the questions coming for everybody, but keep them coming for Nicole Sauce. Uh, next up, I have a question that I'm just going to go ahead and play two answers back to back on. It's on macular degeneration. Uh, I'm going to play the Doc Bones typical MD answer first, followed by the Gary Collins alternative world answer. But this question about macular degeneration
0: and, 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 and what to do about it. Uh, Bones and Gary take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, M.D. here, also known as Dr. Bones of the Survival Medicine website, doomandbloom.net, now with close to 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Ryan, who writes, What should I be doing if I'm at risk for macular degeneration? My mom was diagnosed with macular degeneration. Also, my aunt, my mom's sister, was diagnosed 30 years ago with it and is blind enough so that she cannot drive. I assume I'm at risk because it's in my family. My question is, should I be doing anything to help prevent getting this? Are there supplements that I should be taking? I'm 39. Should I be seeing an eye doctor now in case it's coming on? I've always had perfect eyesight, but I've noticed small print is getting harder to read like dates on coins. This diagnosis has me a bit freaked out, I would appreciate any help. Ryan, macular degeneration is the leading cause of severe vision loss in people over the age of 60. It occurs when the small central portion of the retina, known as the macula, deteriorates. The retina is the light-sensing nerve tissue at the back of the eye. While it does not result in complete blindness, loss of central vision could make it hard to recognize faces, drive, read, or perform other activities of daily life. As macular degeneration typically occurs in older people, at age 39, your eye doctor, which I suggest that you do visit, will give you a clean bill of health in all likelihood. Having said that, there are risk factors that you should avoid if at all possible. Smoking is one of them. Smoking tobacco increases the risk of macular degeneration by two or three times that of someone who has never smoked and may be the most important modifiable factor in its prevention. Hypertension, high blood pressure, is not proven to cause macular degeneration, but elevated pulse pressure, that's the systolic blood pressure, the first number, minus diastolic blood pressure, the second number, is significantly associated with an increased risk. Atherosclerosis, which is the clogging of coronary arteries, high cholesterol and obesity have all been associated with the development of macular degeneration, as is increased consumption of saturated and trans fats, therefore limiting your intake of these and increasing omega 3 fatty acids in your diet may be helpful one risk factor that you can't control is indeed your genetic history, and you do have a somewhat higher chance of getting it for that reason. Although there's no proof that home remedies work, some natural products that have been recommended by herbalists for macular degeneration include berries, grapeseed or pine bark extract, zinc, and ginkgo biloba, generally a lot of antioxidants. The good news is that your current symptoms are probably due to normal aging and not macular degeneration. This is Joe Alden, M.D., that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, experience the joy you get by helping the elderly, that's me, by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, on our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's
3: store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks a lot. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com, answering all your health and wellness, primal lifestyle, paleo diet, living off the grid, and simple living questions. So today, oh, before we get started, I almost forgot... Make sure to check out my book Going Off the Grid it's doing very very well got a lot of positive responses and just got picked up by another distribution company so I know it's doing well make sure to go check that out Um the question today is about macular degeneration and the fact that it's hereditary and runs in his family and when this this person wants to know if they should go start getting regular checkups from an optometrist uh And also, is there anything far as supplementation to help reduce the possibility of getting this disease? Now, with macular degeneration, we really don't know what causes it besides age. We know the older you get that the chances of you suffering from it are much higher. With that being said, we don't know what causes it. Just that we just know it's probably age. If uh, I had to guess, you know, it's there's probably some genetic mutations and and possibly you know diet, uh, environmental exposures, or probably a whole host of things. You know, hereditary. Um, anything. I'm a little different when it comes to modern medicine. I do not completely poo-poo it. I am a believer in balance. I, I believe in using. Natural remedies and modern remedies and weighing them against each other and figuring out what works best for you. That's the best way to go about it, I believe. Now, when it comes to anything that is hereditary or genetic that has been in multiple family members, I 100% recommend you get regular checkups for that condition. I have uh, skin cancer runs in my family. So I've been getting skin cancer checks for the last 20 plus years every six months. Uh I've had it. I even had it as a youngster. Had a big chunk of my shoulder cut, uh, flesh out my shoulder cut out. So I am very proactive and make sure I'm always being checked for it. That is just honestly common sense, to be honest. You don't avoid the doctor on things like that. It's just not worth it. Now, when it comes to supplementation, I would recommend more of the typical lifestyle choices, which I always recommend. Get more exercise, proper sleep, eat a primal paleo diet, you know, eat organic free range, healthy animals, healthy plants, that kind of thing. That is always a key to reduction of disease. So with that supplementation, you know, a good multivitamin and probably omega three, omega six, omega nine balance. That is going to probably be the best bet. And I usually recommend that for everyone period. Um, you guys know, I have my supplement package that I put together that I feel are the six supplements that I feel work that I've for through decades of experience and using on myself and, and clients and everything. There are six supplements that I feel work. For pretty much everyone. But that being said, if he's just looking for those two, I would also possibly beta carotene because that's a precursor to vitamin A. Obviously, that is uh, very helpful for eye health. Is vitamin A. Now, I would talk to his optometrist a little bit about that. I would not supplement with a high dose. I would go and find a 10,000 IU dose of it. Um, that's IU is international units. It's just a it's a measurement. I would go low. Most of it starts in the 25,000 IU. I'm one of those people I like to start lower than higher and then kind of figure out from there. And at that dose, you cannot do any harm is the way I look at it. But I would discuss it with his optometrist eye doctor and figure out if that is something worthwhile uh, doing as far as additional supplements on top of what I just recommended and the beta carotene. Again, thanks, guys. And make sure... To look, if you're MSB members, I give 10% off and always free shipping on MSB members uh, on my website, primalpowermethod.com.
1: So that was interesting, and the answers were different, but they weren't that greatly different, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, next question I have is for Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer on dealing with fire ants uh, and your bees. Michael, take it away.
4: This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. My question is, Michael, I have ants. I have so many ants. I have ant hives, not beehives. They're all over my yard. They're everywhere. I have no idea how to control them. Help, Samantha from Texas. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Samantha. So let's get on a program on how to control the ants. Ants are a social insect that live in colonies, much like the bees do. Treatment plans should include killing the entire colony. Just spraying an ant with a topical ant spray, particularly a repellent spray, will not kill them, but only hinder them at best. Ants may enter your hive to forage for food or seek shelter. Insta- understanding the behavior of ants will help you with your uh, recommended pest control procedures. And we're going we're gonna to get you on a program. Uh, they enter through the smallest openings. They forage for water and food. Um, they're, it's, they're, they're looking for a sweet-based food or protein grease based food. Uh, once they find a source, ants will produce a pheromone trail so other ants know to where to follow to get to the food. The most important ants in the United States are Argentine ants, carpenter ants, crazy ants, fire ants, ghost ants, leafcutter ants, Honduras house ants, pavement ants, and pharaoh ants. So we need to start someplace. Let's start with the 10 foot around the hives. We need to start treating the ground. Bees, most bees, do not work around the first 15 feet around the hives. Their flight orientation makes them skip it. One reason we do not put the heaves right in a garden but 20 to 50 feet away, so in this 15-foot space, we have a good idea that the bees will not forage around it. So let's place some things out and get the ants on the ground first off. We may want to want to, we may want to take down the hives and move the stands and reset them up. We want to lay around 10 foot around the hives with plastic, like visqueen or a type of tarp and cover the whole thing with a white rock you can use any kind of rock but white rock will help reflect the heat up underneath the hives helping you keep warm on cold days when there's sun now be generous with this and sprinkle dominicus earth all over the rocks Uh, this will keep the ants from building homes around your hives and stop them from walking to the hives so we're already going to just start pounding them in the ground and not letting them get close to the hives and when they do they walk around the rocks getting Dominicus earth in their joints uh, starting to take them down so they can't get to the hives. Now let's set the hive stands back up. Now hive stands can be a crucial role in keeping ants out. I like the Freeman Family Farms uh, hive stands in Calhoun, Colorado. They work great. We want the hives to be 18 inches off the ground. We want the legs of the hive stands to be placed in coffee cans. And then we want to fill the cans up with motor oil. Use motor oil. The ants and mice will climb up in the can and in the motor oil and not letting them get up the hive stands to the hives. So if anything now gets to the hive stands, we're going to trap them in an oil can so they can't get up there. Um, but the one thing that we're going to do now is we're going to do another preventative measure. Around the base of those cans, we're going to mix a boric acid with honey. Mixing one tablespoon of boric acid with one cup of honey makes a 2% solution. You can pour this around the base of the cans, or the ants will come to the base of the cans before they start climbing up it. The ants will eat it, take it back to their nest, feeding it to the queens, and, well, they die killing off the nest. So uh, that right, just put it around the base of the coffee cans. Don't put it in the cans. Just get enough to where the ants would probably go around the the white rocks, get underneath the coffee cans and stuff, and get to some of that sugar solution of honey with the borax, and then you'll start killing them. Uh, Another thing you need to start doing is put lubrication grease on the leg stands using petroleum jelly or just grease. This breaks up the pheromone trail that the ants leave. Or you can use PAM cooking spray. So spray in certain areas where you see ants to break up the pheromone trails so they can't get there. So basically the white rocks has Dominicus earth and plastic underneath it, stopping the ants to getting there. If the ants do get there, we're feeding them a honey borax and then trapping them in an oil solution on the cans on the hive stand. Uh, so on the hive stand then we're putting a petroleum jelly so the ants can't climb up it or leave a pheromone trail. And just for an added measure, terloh. Liquid Ant Killer. T E R R O. Liquid Ant Killer. Uh, in bottle caps. Uh, what I do is I just take a nail, push it through the bottle cap with some uh, cocking to keep the bottle cap uh, watertight. And then I will pound those little uh, bottle caps on each end where the hive stands come up to the platform. That way, if the ants do come up, the first thing run into is the bottle caps filled with the tarot liquid ant killer and it's far enough away from the hive stands where the bees aren't going to be walking down the hive stands to get to it because the bees are going to land on the platforms and go into the hives or they're going to land on the beehives and walk into the holes that you've inserted so they're not going to be on the hive stand so if any, hive, any bees finally get up there you're going to feed them the liquid ant killer before they get in there and it's an easy use to lose solution it can be dropped on any provided surface It attracts ants and eliminates them with borax I mean We're using boric acid, we're going to use borax. You can even mix borax with uh, vodka and water and spray it, but it's a killer, but I wouldn't be spraying it in the air because then you're using an air pesticide around your bees. But just a little bottle cap, uh, four of them, just kind of on each side of the hive as the bees would kind of be walking up to the hive, they'd hit that first. And now we can place the hive back on the stand and on the bottom board or the landing board or the bottom board sprinkle ground cinnamon before placing the hive body down. This will keep the bees from getting uh, all all around the bottom of the hive. There's cinnamon on the bottom. It will push them out. And then you can use a hot glue gun and glue cinnamon sticks on each side of the doorway to keep the bees from walking right in through the door. Uh, Another good thing is you can use essential oils instead of powdered cinnamon. It tends to be more potent. So you can simply uh, dip some cotton swabs and then rub it along the areas where you've seen ants Uh, some other essential oils also repair ants the easiest way to spread essential oils is by making a solution with water and you just spray it around in the areas that you need or you spray it directly on the ants so a cinnamon oil base can be sprayed on ants you see on your hive covers or on the sides of your hive breaking up the pheromone and killing ants I would start with a quarter cup of water a quarter cup of vodka and this keeps the solution mixed together and then uh, I would put in probably about 20 to 25 drops of the essential cinnamon oil. Uh, other oils you could probably add would be tree tea oil and uh, peppermint. I'd probably drop 15 drops of each one of those if you don't want to use cinnamon. And maybe seven drops of citrus oil using maybe like an orange lemon or a lime citrus oil. So those would be central oils that you could use. And if it's an area that you're going to be eating off of, you know, you can uh, substitute a lot of that with cloves instead of citrus. Uh, instead of tea tree oil, you can use more peppermint. But mix this all up, get a good spray, go out there and spray it. Now from the ground up to the hive, we've combated ants. Uh, every 9 to 11 days, you can sprinkle Dominicus earth, add borax to the honey, fill the cans up with oil, use the liquid ant killer from Turo in the bottle caps, and then... Sprinkle some cinnamon around the base or spray them with your cinnamon oil. <laughs> uh, this will stop the ants. I mean, we've, we've done about everything we can, and this is just ant combating. So if you have ants like you're telling me where they're all over the ground, they're all over your stands, they're all over in your hives, best way is to start from the ground up. Plastic, white rock, Dominicus earth. Set up your hive stand with cans of oil to keep the ants from climbing it. Grease to break up the pheromones and then using a little boric acid with honey to kill the ants directly. Moving up to the hive with cinnamon and some liquid uh, ant be and then controlling it with maybe some oils and sprays. You'll probably end up uh, getting rid of all these ants and having a pretty healthy hive. So hopefully this helps you. I am the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. Remember to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage industry because we all have to start someplace. Hey, help your fellow man, because one day you're going to be that guy that needs that help too. All
1: right, so my addition to this is a product I've talked about a lot. So I think as far as excluding, deterring, and murdering the ants as they attempt to uh, uh, lay siege to your beehives, Michael did a fine job. However, one of the other things we can do is simply reduce the number of ants, period, that are on the property by murdering them with something I call murder juice. Um, You can make your own murder juice, and I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll call it Howard Garrett's, uh, the Dirt Doctor's Murder Juice is what I'll call it. And uh, it'll give you instructions for making your own. Or you can buy a concentrate from a company called Gardenville. And uh, it it is very, very effective. I buy it by the gallon, and and I have a, a murderous wife. She only murders fire ants, though. And she takes great pleasure in going out and murdering fire ants because they bite her, they bite me, they cause problems on our farm, and they bite our grandchildren, and they bite our, great, our, our nieces and stuff like that. So she likes to murder them. And it's actually, it seems like it's going to rain. It's trying to rain right now. And my idiot turkey pulse ran to the one, I had to go outside during that and uh, put up a cover on my turkey tractor because my idiot turkey pults ran to the one place in the turkey tractor that wasn't covered to keep them dry. Turkeys are stupid. Um I also want to make sure the baby chickens that are in their tractor were covered over too, so because um, I want them getting too wet. But uh you know, when it rains like this is a great time to go out and use your murder juice, because what happens if fire ants have any fire ants have anything redemptive about them, it's that when they build mounds you can see where they are. Because when you can't see where they are, they're really a problem. And when you see all those new mounds pop up and in, in that rain, you just go out with your murder juice. And you mix it according to the instructions on the on the package. And when you look at how much you use to the gallon, you make a lot of murder juice. And you, you soak down your mounds with your murder juice. Now, what's in the murder juice? It's actually pretty simple. The murder uh, component of it is compost tea. I'm sorry, is uh, orange oil. And you can actually just use orange oil, and it'll work pretty good. Uh, but you need orange oil. You need molasses, liquid molasses, um, and you need compost tea and that's what that's what the murder juice is made of and this is what happens. You pour the ant murder juice on the hive, and the orange oil melts the exoskeletons of the insects, like acid on a human being, right It's a pretty horrific death, but for fire ants, I don't mind it at all. And you know, if, as long as you soak it down enough, it gets on the queen. It melts the queen. And once the queen's dead, everybody's dead. So now you got a bunch of dead ants. The um, the molasses actually is deterrent. You think fire ants like dry molasses or, or, or fermented molasses, uh, but they really don't. Especially once it gets into the soil, so it kind of inhibits the concept that they'll come back. But it also attracts microorganisms as well as the compost tea does. So, when you put this on a fire ant mound instead of putting a poison down, you actually are conditioning the soil in fact it 's called antifuego soil conditioner. The link that I have is to the Gardenville website is no longer available on Amazon, probably because the Amazon overhead was killing gardenville they 're the only people I know that commercially make this product. Again, you can make it yourself. I'll put a link, I'll call it Dirt Doctors Murder Juice, uh, in the uh, show notes if you want to do it yourself. But it's pretty simple to do, but it takes time and you have to have all three components. And I find buying the concentrate just easier. And if you do that, plus everything Michael said, you'll probably go a long way to remedying your problem. Because the problem, with, even if you do just keep them out, they're going to keep coming back. They're going to keep trying, and we need to knock the population down. Additionally, you know, you step in one of those mounds when it's low and the grass is growing up. And next thing you know, you do what I did last year, which is I walked all the way from my west pasture all the way back to my house in my underwear. Because they got up into my my jeans, and I'm like, the hell with this, right? Because they got to go. Uh, So keep Comfrey around too, because it works like really great on ant bites, especially if you use it as soon as possible after being bit. Trust me, I know. With that, let's take another question. This one is for John Pugliano on keeping your money safe.
5: Hey, TSP listeners, today's financial question is actually a composite of questions that people have submitted, and it's going to revolve around the topic of where can you put your money safely. This is money that you want to be liquid, so it's not something that's tied up in stocks or real estate or something that you're planning on long-term investing. But for money that you want to keep fairly close by with reasonable access and reasonable safety, now a lot of these questions are based on the premise that people right now are scared to death of an economic meltdown, some type of financial collapse of the banking system, and things called bail-ins, like we saw happened in in places like Cyprus or Greece or other places in Europe. What I want to stress here is that our United States banking system is different and distinct from the way other countries do things. And so, for example, when you hear these bank bail-ins where money is confiscated, that occurs because... They don't have the same federal system that we do. Countries that are part of the European Union have separate and distinct sovereign governments, but they have one euro currency and they have one central bank. Because of the convoluted way that's structured, the president of Italy can't authorize his legislature to print up money to shore up Italian banks because Italy doesn't have their own central bank. There's a European central bank, but not a central bank in each of those member countries. And so all the nations have to agree together to have a bank bailout. And that's why there's a concern on the solvency of European banks and a potential investor run on those banks. But here in the United States, that's not the system. I think as much as you can be assured of anything... You can be assured that if our U.S. banking system is going to collapse, like potentially maybe would have happened in 2008, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury will step in and shore up the system. Regardless of what people are telling you about Title II of Dodd-Frank and all these other things, again, remember, the United States banking system is not perfect, but it is the safest you're going to find. Now, I know some people are going to disagree with me because they're convinced that Title II of Dodd-Frank makes bank deposits susceptible to bail-ins and all these kind of things. And, And what I'm just going to simply say is, if you want to believe that and you want to live your life that way, that's your choice. My understanding of the law and my conclusions that I draw from studying these things is that a lot of this fear and panic that people are drumming up are designed to sell financial products. Things like insurance or precious metals or other types of financial products or instruments that are outside of the traditional banking system, which is insured by FDIC. That's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. While I'm not opposed to selling of financial products, I'm not opposed to insurance, I'm not opposed to precious metals or any of those things, what I am opposed to is people that twist the facts and create a lot of fear and emotion to sell these financial products. What I think is happening in a lot of cases is that people are taking their money out of banks, which are FDIC insured, and then people are putting that money in more risky assets such as non-FDIC insured insurance policies. Now, again, I want to stress here, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have term life insurance or that you shouldn't own precious metals or any of those things. The point that I want to make is, is that every financial decision we make has a risk as flawed and as underfunded and you know all those things that our banking system might be because of the type of fractional banking that we use and the debt based currency we have, it is still all underpinned by things like FDIC insurance that it's really impossible for FDIC to go bankrupt or insolvent because the Federal Reserve would just print the money and loan it to the Treasury and the Treasury would back up FDIC at the end of the day, that's the foundation that our banking system is built on. It's just a matter of trust. And as long as there's a treasury and a federal government and a federal reserve, it's going to continue going that way. And so I don't lose any sleep over bank bail-ins or any of this other kind of nonsense that people that are trying to sell you other products that are less safe are trying to convince you of. So whether you have $1,000 or $50,000 or even a million dollars. You can take advantage of the safety of keeping your money in institutions that are part of the FDIC. That includes most banks, but just don't take it for granted. Go talk to your local branch manager at the bank and make sure that the accounts that you're in are FDIC insured. If you're not happy with their explanation, take your money out of that bank and go put it into a, a branch office where the manager will help you. The same general concept applies to credit unions. Federally chartered credit unions are generally covered through the, um, I believe it's called the National Credit Union Association. It's very similar to FDIC. Now, I can't give you all the specifics on this in the short period of time I have, but you can go over to FDIC.gov and read about what's covered and what's not, and you can apply that to your own situation. But in general, here's, here's the way it goes. An individual depositor has their deposits insured for up to $250,000 in a particular bank. But you can also have multiple forms of coverage depending upon what type of accounts you have. And so, for example, you could be covered under your checking account or your savings account or your certificate of deposit or under a dual account with you and your spouse. Or maybe you have a family trust Or maybe it's your business corporation. You see, all of these different legal entities can potentially individually qualify for that $250,000 of coverage at the same bank. So it's possible to come up with a scenario where you can have in excess of a million dollars within the same bank and have it all FDIC insured. The other thing about FDIC insurance is that it's just not savings and checking accounts. Potentially, your cash holdings within your IRA or your Roth could also be covered by FDIC insurance. Again, it depends on how the account is chartered. What that doesn't include are insurance policies, stocks, corporate bonds, municipal bonds. It also doesn't include the contents of your safety deposit box. So for people that are holding large amounts of cash at home or having it stashed away somewhere else, I think you should seriously consider putting it into a bank or financial institution where it will be FDIC insured. Now, what should you do if you've been squirreling away a large sum of money that's outside of a traditional bank and you do want to put it back into the banking system? Well, just take it down to your local bank and deposit it. Now, if you show up with $100,000 of cash, you are going to raise some eyebrows. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to go to jail. It doesn't mean they're going to call the IRS on you, but they are going to have to fill out some paperwork, and they're going to ask you some questions, like, where did you get this money? Okay, that's just the kind of world we live in. They're required to do that, and you should answer the questions honestly. You can tell them you've been saving it up for years because you didn't have faith in the bank, you hated Obama, you didn't like Trump, whatever the reason is, but let them know that it came from legal earnings and savings. If you lie to them or him and haw or put up a fight, then yes, you're likely to have that escalated to a higher level. But if you simply tell them the truth, explain to them that maybe you sold a house a couple years ago and you wanted to hold on to the money because you were afraid of the banking system, but now you're not, they'll accept that. If you try and be sneaky and make small deposits and try and put it in under the radar, that's when you'll set off alarms. And then you can bet that some kind of state or federal agency will be looking into your finances. The one final note I want to finish up on is that earlier this week, I think it was episode 2006, Jack answered a listener question about being your own banker. And he answered that question in very specific detail and asked if I had anything to add to it. Well, I don't. He covered all the bases. He pretty much said exactly what I would have. And if you want to get additional perspective on that, check out the comment section to that episode, and you can read some really poignant comments that Jack made. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth.
1: So, so what I want to throw in there um, is something that John left out. Um, this was kind of, I think it was almost four questions lumped together that were basically the same question. Of them, if, I, if my memory serves me, three were the type of people I said during the intro people that had all of a sudden a bunch of money sitting in front of them that never had money in their lives before on any significant quantity. Maybe they had some in a 401k or IRA where they didn't really think about it, but it built up over time. They never, you know, just really were able to sit back and go, look, I got 50 grand, I got $250,000, whatever it is sitting here in front of me. I feel like this money's at risk. And John did a great job of covering why your money's pretty damn safe in a U.S. bank. I I, I would tell you that if you really believe your money's not safe in a U.S. bank, the problem is it's denominated in dollars, not that it's in a U.S. bank. That is the, the biggest threat to your money, and that's not the threat I'm talking about here, but it's the biggest threat to your money if you're worried about some kind of economic collapse or something like that. My view is that if we are headed in that direction, there'll be lots of time to exit if you're a person with your eyes open. For, for many people, it would come like a thief in the night. It would come up, well, how'd this happen? I don't understand. For anybody paying attention, something that catastrophic would be obvious. More obvious than the stock market crash of 08, 09 that, to me, <clears throat> people still say, like, you were Nostradamus. And, no, like, if you paid attention, that was, like, you could see that from 100,000 miles away. And I, I'm not real worried about that being a huge risk to your money. I think long-term inflation is a terrible risk to your money because uh, it's an insidious hidden tax um, but just, you know, if you, like, what do I do with this $50,000 that my Uncle Frank left me and I don't really know what I want to do with it right now, put it in a bank account. But here's where I get to the biggest risk, risk to your money when money comes into your life that way. You are the biggest risk to your own money when money comes into your life that way. And part of the reason that people have so much fear and apprehension is in their heart they know that. So they're looking for some other thing to blame for the fear, so that they can put that money into a place where they won't be that risk anymore. Because it is amazing what happens to a person that up with $50,000 in their life and says, well, you know, we can take a little bit of it for this and a little bit for that, and an emergency comes up, so we dip into it, and next thing you know, they have like $5,000 left. And $45,000 is gone, and there's not a lot to show for it. It happens all the time it 's why people win lotteries of ten twenty thirty million dollars and they're broke. I think there was actually a study done one time that was like people that won between twenty and thirty million dollars in like a big mega lottery were actually more likely to be bankrupt in ten years than people that won two or three million dollars because they got a lot more free with it, a lot more quickly okay if that makes sense so i I think when I say put it in a bank account or something. If you have a savings account, don't just put it in that savings account. You need a separate bank account for windfall monies like that that you need to look at as though it's your money, it's liquid, you can do anything you want to with it, but there should be an extra thought about it every time you think about taking a penny from it. And and the best thing to do when you're in this mode, which is, oh, I'm afraid of what would happen, is just do exactly that. Put it in the bank and just let go of it for a while. Because what people are thinking is, I gotta do something. I gotta do something. I gotta do something. And this is what happens to people. Like, rate one of stock markets at like an all-time high, like right now, and, and they find a money manager. You gotta put it in the market. And of course, money managers will generally go, okay, there it is. It's it's divested nicely amongst a, a whole plethora of mutual funds. And like, oh, bam, and the market drops thirty percent, or the market drops ten percent. You know, and that's that's much more likely to happen than the banks are going to go bust. So, put it away. Pretend it's not there for a month. And then come back to it with fresh eyes and say, is there an opportunity that we can we can take with this? Is there something that we've been wanting to do? Is there an investment? Or is it just better off where it is or Have we found a good investment advisor? We need to say now this money is available for investments and we want to be conservative with it or aggressive. you got to figure out for yourself what to actually do with it long term. But when you're in fear mode, put it away and relax. Just relax. It's not going anywhere. The whole thing's not going to fall apart tomorrow. It just isn't. Next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris on charging batteries when uh, you're on a long hike, like 200 miles long. Yep. Steve, take it away.
6: Hi, this is Steve Harris, and I am calling in to answer your question, and boy, do I have a doozy of a good one. It is from a fantastic guy by the name of Eric. And Eric, um, he sent me a lot of details. Yeah, he's hiking the John Mural, M-U-I-R, trail, 220 miles. 18 days he's going to be hiking this trail. Keep in mind, this man is walking... 220 miles over 18 days on a trail through the Sierra Nevada Mountain. He says, I have end loops and headlamps based on Steve's recommendations and love them all. Thank you. Should I get a USB charger for the end loop batteries for my portable solar panel, or should I just carry more batteries and get resupplied along the way? Now, in his electronic gear, he is carrying an iPhone 7, and he's going to be out of cell phone range for a long time, so basically this is going to be in airplane mode, which is real low in power. Uh he is carrying N loop A AA and AAA A batteries and he has something called an in reach GPS. This is a two way satellite communicator. It's you know smaller than the size of a pack of cigarettes. It will talk to the satellite. You can send out tweets or texts very limited, like 80 characters, you know, but at least you got two-way communications via satellite to the people who are wondering where the heck is the person that I love. So he has this uh, device, and I'm very, very familiar. They send a signal up to the satellite every 10 minutes to say, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And your loved ones and family and people or someone doing Overwatch for you can go online and see where you are every 10 minutes. It gives them an update. You know, when you're way out, in the, plus you can send an emergency signal up that goes to loved ones. You can send an emergency signal that goes to the Coast Guard and rescue agencies. It's a very smart move to carry one of these or an Iridium satellite phone when you are going on a trip. This, you know, it's going to be 100 miles from everyone, 18 days. I mean, if you break your ankle, God, you got to be airlifted out so um, he also has some anchor battery packs there are 10,000 milliamp hours they charge up via 5 volts usb his in reach charges up via 5 volts usb and based upon its battery usage which he's already tested the internal battery will last him for about six days and then he needs to recharge it he wants to recharge his uh, in reach satellite and gps device he wants to recharge some end loops, which are triple A's for his headlamps and some double A's for other stuff. And he has a solar charger. Uh, it's a 15-watt panel. And uh, actually, I'm doing some stuff right now with solar charging just for you guys, special video. And I'm using a 21 and a 24-watt panel amongst other things. And I tell you why in the video. So he's got a way to recharge. Now, one of the absolutely stupidest, most moronic advertisements I have ever seen is the one you see all the time with the guy with the backpack. He's got the solar panel on his backpack. I'm walking through the woods, and I'm charging my stuff as I'm walking. Except you're in the woods. It means you're in the shade. They're called solar panels, not shade panels. Or it's the winter time and you're in the desert and the sun is low and to the south, and you're walking east and west and south. The solar panels hanging down your backpack would only work if you're walking north. And then, oh, I'm gonna use the solar panels in my backpack in the summertime. Yeah, they're hanging straight down your backpack. And the sun for the majority of day in the summertime, where is it? Ah, directly overhead. So the cells are vertical, taking in horizontal energy, and your energy is coming from above your head. That's why you're wearing a hat. He does qualify for the special Steve Harris exemption for solar power. Why? Because he's going out for more than two weeks or more than ten days. It's a weight versus cost uh, savings benefit. Look, the Anchor 21 watt panel I have is only, is almost exactly one pound. A 20,000 milliamp hour iMuto, that's I-M-U-T-O, USB battery weighs about exactly one pound. They're the same. Now let's see, I have a solar panel that may or may not produce enough energy for me to charge my phone and other devices, and I can only charge one at a time. Even though it's got two output jacks on it, trust me, you can only charge really one at a time. And So it doesn't work at night, doesn't work on rain, doesn't work when it's cloudy, and it doesn't work when it's not pointing at the sun. Let's see, for the same weight, I can have 20,000 milliamp hours. And to give you an idea, your, your cell phone battery, uh like a Galaxy S4 is around 1,800 milliamp hours, a Galaxy S8 is going to be, S8 Plus is going to be 3500. So, gee, the 20,000 milliamp hour battery works at night when it's raining, when it's sunny. It works all the time. It'll give me just enough charge. I can actually charge my phone and my buddy's phone at the same time if I had to, and because it does have two ports on it. And um, so which one would I want to take? Well, you know, the answer is, You know, this is one of the reasons I talk against solar so much is because it's a much better decision to say, I'm going to take the battery with me. Now, Eric is getting resupplied four days into his trip and then it eight days in his trip he's resupplied again someone actually hikes into the trail and brings food and supplies and batteries and then he's on his own for 10 days so his 10 days is going to be his biggest stretch of time uh without needing power for his phone the phone's going to be in like i said flight mode because he wants the phone for its great video camera he can take you know 1080 videos. He can take awesome pictures. You know, it's got a backup GPS into it. If you want to, he can watch a movie at night. He can do anything that you want for whatever reason. Okay? And plus, he got to charge his reach. So, he's better off carrying a 20,000 or 30,000 milliamp hour iMuto battery. Again, on Amazon, at IMUTO is the name brand. Get the standard USB version battery. Don't forget to use Jack's T-SPAS when you do it. Or Go over to cellphone1234.com and you'll see other things in that area that you can get. Now, one of the things I told him I wanted him to get was the Xtar X-T-A-R Victor Charlie Two Plus (VC2 Plus). It is the best uh, simple uh, computer-controlled charger for charging nickel-metal hydride, double AA, A, triple A's, and lithium-ion batteries, and is powered from the USB a USB port. So he can take, actually take solar energy and he can put it into his iMuto battery. He can then take the energy from the battery and I go over these efficiencies in my video. It'll blow you away and take that and put it into his AAAs that he's using as his headlamp. His backup, um, you know, something, everything's gone wrong. Batteries are energizer, lithium, disposable AAA and AA batteries. Those are the probably the most reliable consumer batteries made in the world. When everything is going to hell, you want Energizer, lithium, disposable, AA and AAAs. That's all they are coming is AA and AAAs. You can bet your life on them, and I know a lot of people in government service who bet their life on them. They work. He is taking the solar panel with him, and he is going to take the XTAR VC2+, and he is getting a 30,000 milliamp hour iMuto battery to go on his trip. Now, when I went down to Florida for eight days, I completely charged and ran my Samsung Galaxy S4 phone, off of the Imuto 30,000 milliamp hour battery, completely. I, I, I Wi-Fi'd, I texted, I surfed, I talked. You know, I it, my phone was charged up when I left. The Imuto was charged up when I left, and it, you know, charged ran the whole thing for. Eight solid days, and at the end of eight days, there was still charge left in the phone, but the iMuto battery was on zero, zero. That's the other thing. This battery has a digital display on it. It tells you approximately exactly what the percentage, there we go, approximately exactly, another Harrisism, approximately exactly, you know, the percentage uh, of the battery charge that is left in it, which is really awesome because let's say you plug it in and I plugged one in once and it was like, okay, charge. And I look at it a half hour later and it was on, I started on 39% and it says 40%. So I wait another half hour and it says 41%. I go, no, this ain't right. It should be, you know, 80 some percent. So I unplugged the charger, plugged it back in. The, to the battery to start charging the battery it must have reset the computer circuit because it started taking off i looked at it a half hour later and it was you know 80 percent charged so that's one thing you get with a digital display on a battery that's why i want you to have a digital display on a usb battery and so you can tell if the thing is working is it charging is it discharging You can tell if you know your battery and you know what you are doing. So in this case, Eric is going to go on the trail. He is going to take a 30,000 milliamp hour battery with him that will easily power his phone. And then at the resupply point in eight days, he is going to hand off his you know, used 30,000 milliamp hour battery and pick up another one at the person hiked in for him so he can charge his inReach a, a satellite communications device and he can charge his Apple i7 phone uh, uh, on his last 10 days of the trip. So this is really smart what he's doing. He could actually do the whole thing without you, without the solar panel, but he kind of wants to experiment with it and try it out and see how it works. How do you know something works or doesn't work? You try it. Now it, you know, there's many cases where it didn't work for me. It might work for Eric. You know, the same thing for you. Don't believe what I'm telling you. Go do it yourself and own the information. Own the knowledge. Uh, I did not want him taking his Anchor battery pack because they don't have a double-digit display on them. Anchor does not make one with a uh, three-digit display on it. I love Anchor for their... Chargers for their wall chargers for their car chargers par excellence their cables are some of the highest quality ones especially the red braided ones in the industry but as far as the anchor USB battery pack goes you can do better with the iMUTOS now. We are on the verge of a threshold. We have USB-C. We have USB-PD, which stands for Power Distribution. And we have Quick Charge from Qualcomm, Quick Charge 2.0, 3.0, and 4.0. What's the difference? It's going to have to be, it's going to be in one of my future videos. I'm going to explain. We are, things are changing and changing rapidly, and they are changing for it to be the most interesting that you could think of. This is Steve Harris for the Survival Podcast. Eric, great question. Oh, actually, I, I called Eric. That's why I know this much. He had so many questions and stuff. I said, just send me your phone number. And I called him and found out what he was doing and talked to him for about a half hour. I sent him a bunch of emails that I sent to other people with, you know, gear stuff to get from Amazon and the hows and whys or to explain. So I said, Eric, I'm just going to send emails to you. You know, go through them all and sort out what you like when you don't like and, you know, get what you want for your trip. Well, before I recorded this, I called him back and I said, Eric, Uh, the stuff that you bought, what did you like and what did you not get? Well, you know, he goes, oh, the 18650 batteries, loves the 18650 batteries. Might not take him on this trip, but he loves, you know, the idea of using 18650s. And, um... He's got the iMuto 30,000 milliamp-hour batteries and everything. So if you want to know all the great stuff I've done with Jack and listen to all my free stuff and my preparedness classes, please go over to stephen1234.com and take a look at the feedback that people have given me and help yourself to everything I have up there. The vast majority of it is free. All right, so I wanted to throw a little advice here
1: as a hiker and with some some thoughts. So I'm hoping that that Eric's done some hiking in the past and this isn't the first, you know, time you've hiked, let's say more than three or four days in a row. because um, you you learn a lot, but it's not maybe the best time to learn. But you know, with your plan, you have resupplies of stuff and if you're if you're having a hard go of it you'll be able to kind of dutch out of it um, or reassess how you're doing it. The distance and the miles per day is not insane. Um, you know, you need to hike uh, 200 miles, 18 days, 11.11 miles a day. This is There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, it sounds to me like he's done some calculations that make a lot of sense. Uh, when you look at average hiking miles per day for the Appalachian Trail, uh, which, which I spent some time on, um, you usually a good hiker... Uh, average hiker that, that's done some hiking in the past and is in shape for the hike, uh, will average about 12.8 miles a day. The out of shape hiker that's not gonna fall over and die, but you know, he's just really not in the best shape of all, will average about 9.5 miles a day. And after a month, if you stick with it for a month, almost every hiker will equalize and average about 16 miles a day. There's a lot of reason for that. And these are hard numbers. These are from studies and averages of hikers across you know the full spectrum. One is that most hikers, even if they venture off alone, they end up um, hooking up with people for periods of time on the trail. Because it's it's an opportunity to not be completely alone. Sometimes people do want to be alone, but a lot of times people kind of group up. Which means that you kind of settle into a rhythm that's a common rhythm. And that's a big reason that everybody kind of equalizes after that month. Plus, they're in enough shape, they've got into the routine, they know what they're doing, they're getting up early, they're hiking late, what have you. Here's what's left out of that. Okay, here's what's completely left out of that. Most hikers that go on long distance hikes, and I would say 200 is long, but it's not, it's not a definite that this is the case, tend to not just hike. Um, They try to get something out of the hike beyond just the hiking experience. And what I mean by that is, you know, they'll hike hard for 7 days, 10 days, sometimes 12 days. And then they'll say, you know, I think I'm going to hitch a ride into this little town. I'm going to stay in a hotel for a couple nights, or I'm going to find this... Lady that I heard about that lets you sleep in her barn for a couple nights. I'm gonna have power. I'm gonna make some phone calls. I'm gonna check in with people. I'm gonna go see a tourist attraction. I'm gonna go to a freaking restaurant and instead of eating powdered eggs yet again with with, with dehydrated spam, uh, this time I'm gonna go and I'm gonna have uh, country gravy and biscuits and some chicken fried steak or you get what I'm saying? Like there's these respites, like a vacation from the vacation, so to speak. At 200 miles, you might want to consider upping it to 20 days and taking one of these in the middle. So that you can really, you know, maybe is is there some place that you're passing by, some town, some something. And here's where this ties into everything that Steve just taught you. For long-distance hikers, the methodology that Steve laid out, and it's so much easier today than it was when I was on the trail 30 years ago. Oh my God, 30 years ago. Hey, it's not quite thirty, but damn, it's friggin' close, isn't it? Holy shit! Anyway, um, it's like twenty six years ago, twenty seven years ago. My God! Anyway, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of electronics to run, so you know, it, it really wasn't a concern. We didn't have GPSs. Uh, nobody had a cell phone. Um, you know, so my my Opinion is a bit dated, but talking to people like uh, Jessica Mills, Jessica Dixie Mills, who's right now on the second of the Triple Crown hiking the Pacific Rim Trail, and I'm seeing updates from her on her trip. You know, she's taking time out to go to somebody's birthday party or go into town, or, you know, it's not this continuous pounding through. And what that allows you to do is, you know, if you're carrying that awesome battery pack, which I'm going to have to check that one out. I'll put a link in the show notes for you uh, for the Simuto. i have to compare it to the Anchor that I'm a big fan of. You've got something like that, and you can go 10 days on it. Well, then at 10 days, you're, you're taking that respite. You're going somewhere where you can plug into the grid or what have you. And I, I kind of wanted to put that in there because I think there's a lot of you out there that maybe were inspired by the interview I did with Jessica Mills, and you've looked at this, you've heard me talk about doing it, uh in, in my youth and you know man I was it was hard because you didn't have the gear, you didn't have the knowledge, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have the communications. But for me it was relatively easy because I just came out of three years of military service with the airborne. So walking, you know, with a light relatively lightweight pack in an enjoyable situation without somebody yelling at you, that was pretty easy. But I took a lot of that time off too. It wasn't just every day pounding the ground like some kind of forced road march. And I would encourage some of you to even consider, you know, you don't have to do a 200-mile hike. You know, look at a 100-mile. Find a 100-mile section of trail somewhere that has a couple or three towns in it. And and hike a day or hike two days and take two days in town in a hotel. It's okay. It's not cheating. It's not cheating. It's like cheating. No, it's not cheating. It's enjoying yourself. Then get back on the trail for a couple more days, stay in another hotel, and get to your pickup point. You know, a range pickup or something something like that. You know, I, take an Uber to the airport and fly home. I don't know. What, whatever works. That's, that is that is a really great way not just to test your preps but to reset. And with Friday, there's a lot of thinking over weekends. And if you've been thinking about this, I tell people, I tell you guys all the time, sometimes you really need to figure out what you really want in the world. I don't know a better way than a few days to a few weeks in the wilderness disconnected from all the bullshit. And, and the backup battery stuff while you're out there is for emergency stuff. It's for the satellite link-up. that tells people where you are in okay, case something happens. Let go of the Internet. Don't go on to Facebook. If you want to make a big thing about it and post it to Facebook and say, here I am, here I am, then only do that. Don't look at the stupid shit about the Paris Accords or whatever the hell's going on a couple weeks from now when you're doing this. Just let it go. Let it go. And I can tell you, there's times I think back to when I was 20 years old, 21 years old, and we didn't have all this connectivity, and I kind of miss it. That we weren't beaten over the head with it all day, every day, day and night. And this is a great way to disconnect. I wish you well on your trip. Please, you know, check in with us uh, during and after your trip, and let us know uh, how it goes for you. But uh, don't don't fear taking an extra day or two if you can manage it uh, within your time budget to uh, to pamper yourself. Go jump in the freaking hotel hot tub or something like that. It feels good after five, seven days of hiking with an aching back. Uh, but that ache feels good, too, so get out there and do it. Next up, I have a question about buying cars on
7: CarMax for Charles the Humble Mechanic. What's up, TSP? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com answering your car-related questions. This one comes from Quinn. says, hey, Jack and Charles, what are the pros and cons about CarMax? My wife and I are looking at getting a newer vehicle. Her family has used CarMax and swears by it. The concept sounds great with no hassle, but how much more am I paying for a no-hassle experience? Do I trust that they're actually doing what they say they're doing, or should I put out for a pre-purchase inspection? Thanks for the great work, Quinn. Quinn, awesome question, and it just so happens that your old pal Charles here used to work for CarMax uh, going on what is going to make me feel ultra-old 20 years ago. Uh, It was my first job in the automotive industry, and I worked there as a sales consultant. Yes, this technician used to be a salesman. Let's talk a little bit about the buying experience and the process of doing business with CarMax. Now, when I worked there, again, 20 years ago, things may be a little bit different, but I think the concepts and the mentality is very much the same. CarMax has a very strict, very rigid process that the sales consultants and the customers go through. The sales consultant walks the customer through the whole buying experience. When I worked there, we even signed the paperwork with the customers. I understand now that that's not the case. And honestly, that's probably for the better. Uh, so the cars do get rehabbed or reconned, as, as they call it. They go through maintenance. They go through any minor repairs that are needed. Uh, they paint work and things like that. Uh, so they did a pretty thorough job back when I worked there. Now, from where I'm at today, where I see CarMax sending Volkswagen the cars to get things like recalls done and warranty work done, uh, they still do a pretty good job of recon overall. Now, there are cases, I almost guarantee there are cases, that the car doesn't get looked over as thoroughly as it should, or the recon tech misses something, or it's got damage that you're not happy with, or insert whatever problem you can think of It probably still happens today so one of the really cool things though about buying a car from CarMax is you get a period of time where you can bring the car back so if I were buying a car from CarMax today I would go I would pick out the car that I loved I would buy it I would then immediately take it to a technician or to my mechanic if I had my own get it up in the air and have it looked at have it gone through top to bottom left to right Have them make sure that they go through and see if the maintenance was done on the car. You should get a check sheet of all the things that were fixed on the car, or at least the maintenance that was done or the inspections that were done. Give them that list too and have them go back and recheck it. Have them make sure that a thorough inspection was done on the vehicle. That's what, so they're going to tell you, you can't just take the car and get it to your mechanic. They're going to tell you what that's, that's what the return period is for. And they're right. That is what it's for. It's for you to make sure that you like that car. So I still would pay the hundred bucks or whatever for the pre-purchase inspection. If nothing else, for the peace of mind that CarMax did a really great job on reconning that car. But that actually starts before the recon period. They also have buyers on staff. That will go, they'll inspect a car, let's say they're trading it in or purchasing it from a customer. They'll look at paint, they'll look at everything that they can reasonably look at in a 10 to 15 minute time frame. They'll they'll drive it and make sure the check engine lights not on and things like that. So um, they'll they'll take a pretty good look at the car before CarMax even purchases it. They also do things like car facts and vehicle history reports to make sure that there isn't a certain percentage of damage or Back when I worked there, if there were like two panels in a row that needed paintwork and then you had to go into the third panel, like driver's front door, driver's rear door and fender, and then you had to go to the hood. At some point, they won't retail that car. They would either put it on the older car side or simply ship it to auction. CarMax sends a lot of cars, a ton of cars to auction. In fact, I got a slamming deal On my 97 Integra that way, it should have been priced at about 14 grand. I think I bought it for maybe $7,000 because it needed some paintwork. That was the only thing wrong with it. Minor cosmetic stuff and I saved, you know, $7,000 off buying a car while I was an employee. So they do a pretty thorough job of going through the car, making sure everything's cool to the best of their ability at the time. Problems can always arise down the road or while the car sits on the lot, but They do a pretty good job. As far as paying more or not, it really all depends. So you've eliminated the negotiation factor out, right? There is no negotiation. I lost sales because the guy wanted to save another $50 and you just couldn't do it. It was this price. That's it. The good side is, boy, doesn't that eliminate a lot of stress, a lot of nonsense, a lot of BS, that you don't have to worry about. There's no back and forth with the sales manager. There's no back and forth with the finance. This is the price. Do you like the car or not? And it makes it so much easier. I I still, to this day, don't understand why there's not more dealerships and more models of that. You don't need to hide pricing or give a little more for the trade so you can charge a little more for the car. All that, to me, is nonsense. It has made the car buying experience completely unpleasant for most people. I've worked in the industry for 20 years almost, and I still hate the dealership buying experience. It's not fun for me. I don't want to negotiate. I have better things to do with my time than work for four hours to save $50. Tell me how much it is. I'll decide if I want to buy it or not. And that's the vibe, and that's the mentality that you get at CarMax. You simply find the car you like, Make sure it's good and then buy it. The other great thing is you can go to one place and test drive 10 different cars of 10 different makes and models, get in and out of them. It's a great way to do research in real life instead of online. You know, when I started, the online car buying experience had just barely, just barely got there. We had moved one of the salespeople to the internet department. They created the internet department while I worked there. So that's how long ago that was uh, and how different today is where you can do, you know, a decade worth of research on a car sitting on your couch. But to me, it doesn't replace the touch, the feel, the comfort of the seat, where the buttons are, what it feels like to me as a driver, as compared to maybe you or Jack or my wife or anybody else. We all have different expectations and desires of what we want while we're in our vehicle where things are comfortable for me may be awful for you so it's a good place to sit in the cockpit of a bunch of cars and test them out you may think you need to have a jeep grand cherokee you may sit in one and go this sucks i really want to buy this honda pilot or this volkswagen atlas whatever whatever cars you're looking at you know That is another great thing about CarMax, too. I do believe, by and large, you will probably pay a little bit more for the car than if you found the exact vehicle at a dealership. Because there is no negotiation, they're going to price it a little bit higher, maybe, maybe not. But remember, CarMax deals on volume, too. They're going to sell way more cars than the average dealership will per month, especially in the used car side. So they don't have to price them $2,000 more than the dealership in maybe 300 bucks. And at the end of it, especially if you finance what's $300 over five years, it's not worth squabbling in my opinion to get $300 off. If I could just go in, pick the car I want and leave and have an enjoyable experience rather than being miserable. And no matter what, probably feeling like I got ripped off by the dealership, the dealership got one over on me or that kind of mentality. When you buy one with fixed pricing, You know, the sales consultants getting paid. He doesn't care what kind of car you're going to buy. So he's going to help you buy the right car for you instead of trying to push you towards a car that maybe the service manager or maybe the sales manager pumped an incentive on that month that may not be the right car for you, but it's the right car for their wallet. Regardless of how people feel about sales consultants, the good ones do bring a lot of value and should be compensated accordingly for that. So overall, I do think it's a good place to buy the car. I still would definitely get a pre-purchase inspection. And honestly, I would probably still buy the warranty from CarMax as well. The company that underwrites the warranties that CarMax sells is the best warranty company to deal with hands down from a customer standpoint. And from a service shop standpoint. So if you bring your car in and you have this CarMax warranty, the warranty company covers the most. It's the least hassle to deal with. I've had them provide rental cars for customers and on and on and on. So I highly recommend if you don't have like four grand in the bank set aside specifically for car repairs and you have an opportunity to buy an extended warranty, buy it. It's going to pay for itself in one or two, three repairs, and then you win. And if you trade the car in, a lot of times you can cancel it and get a prorated refund back. So I hope this didn't feel like a CarMax commercial because it's really not. You know, buy the car in whatever manner that you feel comfortable buying it in. But my experience overall with working at CarMax and then now as a technician standpoint, working with customers that have purchased from CarMax is definitely more positive than it is negative. There are always chances that the car you're going to buy sucks or there's a problem with it that they didn't catch and you didn't catch and your mechanic didn't catch or something down the road just simply breaks and that is what it is. But do a really thorough inspection on the car. If you see any cosmetic damage, point it out before you buy it. Take it to your mechanic, get the pre-purchase inspection, and rock and roll from there, man. I I think it's a great idea. Again, I wish more places moved to that model because the whole song and dance of staying till 9.30 to save 50 bucks may be worth it to some people. It's not worth it to me. My time is more valuable than that. I want to get a good deal. I want everybody to win. And I want, most importantly, a reliable car that I enjoy driving. So, Quinn, great question. I hope that helps you and anybody else maybe considering buying from CarMax or a place similar to that that does have fixed pricing. Guys, thanks so much for having me part of the expert council. It's great that I can finally give back to a community that has helped me out so much. So Jack, TSP, thank you guys so much, and have a great weekend. Okay, good stuff from Charles.
1: Um, next one comes to me from Tammy. Tammy says, bottom line up front, is insurance a form of tax? And taxation is theft. Dear Jack... Some types of insurance are mandatory due to legislation, minimum car insurance, Unaffordable Care Act, and some are de facto mandatory because without them, we know we or want it, we can't ex- we cannot exist. Private mortgage insurance, homeowners insurance, life insurance, umbrella coverage insurance, disability insurance, firearm owner insurance, personal li- professional liability malpractice insurance, dental and vision insurance, and whatever insurance a small business needs to operate not having these type of insurance means that we are either breaking the law or that we could absolutely uh lose absolutely everything financially which would then lead to losing the ability to feed and shelter our families therefore since they are mandatory they are not the same are they not the same as tax as you have pointed out government involvement leads to exponential cost increases healthcare college roads defense etc and since government legislates and regulates so much of the insurance industry and punishes non-participation, then insurance is obviously a form of taxation. The high cost of insurance is a form of government oppression. Um, have you ever added up the taxes and insurance the average family pays a year? It's mind-boggling. Have you ever considered how much the price of goods and service are influenced by required taxes and insurances uh, the producers, transport, and sellers of those goods are required to pay? It is even more mind-boggling. Sorry, this is long. I'd love to hear you rant on this, even if you disagree with my premise that insurance is a form of taxation. Your show is the highlight of my day. When my dog hears your voice, she knows it's time for a walk. So it's her highlight, too. Tammy in Georgia. Someone said the other day that they were out with their ducks in their garden. And they turned me on, and they had me like a speaker, and all the ducks ran over to listen to me. And that I was the duck whisperer. I don't know who those ducks are, but my ducks are not that, uh, that responsive to my voice unless they hear duck, duck, duck and they know there's food coming. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tammy, I agree and I disagree. Um, I agree completely and then partially and then not at all. So let's start out with how I completely agree. When government mandates an insurance, um, that you do not wish to purchase and specifies the type of insurance you must buy, I believe that is a form of tax. It is a neo-fascist tax because it's government directly funneling money into the hands of the corporatocracy, okay? To a degree. A A perfect example of this is Obamacare, the Unaffordable Care Act. It is a tax. It is absolutely a tax, and therefore, since tax is theft, it is theft and this is how we know it's a tax, the Supreme Court, in their justification for not forcing the repeal of the mandate in Obamacare, said that it was a tax. That's why they said it was constitutional. They, they actually said that if it was just a mandate to buy insurance, it would in fact be unconstitutional, because um, it's not something like, car insurance and public roads, and we'll get into that in a second, that you're basically telling somebody that they have to buy something that they don't want to buy, and that so you, you, you can't do that, basically. But the government, especially the federal government, can't do that. The federal government, however, has almost unlimited powers of taxation under the Constitution. And if deemed a tax then it's legal, and that was actually the Obama administration's defense. Remember how they said it's not a tax, your taxes aren't going up, it's not a tax, it's not a tax? Well, they said that to get it passed, but once it passed, as soon as the challenge is in court, the 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 Obama administration legal team said, well, it's a tax, so it's legal. And that's all part of public record. So we know that's a tax. And, and what makes that a tax is... A couple things. One is the mandate itself absolutely is a tax. Two, the mandate applies universally regardless of behavior. In other words, you do not have to have car insurance unless you own and operate a car. You don't even have to have car insurance to operate a car. The owner of the car can have insurance that will cover you as long as you're a licensed driver. When you rent a car, if you don't add extra insurance, there's an inherent amount of insurance on the vehicle when you leave with it. And then your insurance company, if you have personal insurance, covers some other things. But you're not forced to buy car insurance unless you choose to buy a car and drive it on public roads. You're not even forced to buy a driver's license to drive a car or insurance to buy, drive a car. If you own 10,000 acres and have your own roads on it, you can have a car. You can drive it all that you want to drive it. You don't have to worry about uh, having a license or insurance or anything else like that. Yeah, you, know, you can, you can drive all you want. So it's not required unless you choose to, you know, do something. Now, do I think that is a tax anyway? Yes, I do. Because by making it universal, they're once again neo-fascist causing the money to go into the hands of the corporatocracy. And by specifying the minimum level of coverage, uh, they're actually making it very difficult for people to get on the road if they come from families that don't have a lot of money where mom and dad can't pay the insurance bill. Because the insurance for a new driver is insane. And it's, it's going to be insane when you look at what has to be covered. Um, however, I do think that if we got rid of the state, and uh, the roads were then private, that that most road owners would require some sort of proof of insurance to operate on the roads because that's the only way that they're going to be able to stay in business. So insurance is a practical thing. Now, when it becomes – here's how it gets more and more tax-like. One, is it mandated regardless of behavior? So in other words, if you are the picture of health, uh, you work out every day. You never go to the doctor. You practice alternative medication, and you pay for it yourself. You've basically said, if I get super sick, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be a burden on the thing. If you were to sign a contract saying that, you still have to buy Obamacare. It's, it's, it's a tax. That's why the Supreme Court said it's a tax. As you get into things like automobile insurances, these are not set by the federal government. They're set by the state government, lowercase s, right? Uh, so that form of the state, right? The pseudo-state. And each state has different mandates and things like that. And when they go, again, universally broad with their mandates, that anybody operating a vehicle has to have X type of insurance, um, you get into a situation where the market becomes somewhat predatory from the insurance company standpoint. But it's still not a full-on tax. It's not full-on theft. Because if you remove the state, I'm telling you right now, this is where people don't understand voluntarism, anarchism. It's not like all rules would go away. It would be the absence of rulers, not the absence of rules. And when somebody owns a piece of property, they set the rules, and a road owner would set insurances. So that's kind of in the middle there. Now, when you start throwing in things like umbrella coverage, like to, to protect yourself, or choosing to buy disability insurance, or professional liability insurance, or malpractice insurance. I'm going to leave malpractice out because a lot of times with doctors and stuff, that's, that's, that's mandated in order to have their license, which is controlled by the state. Um, but I'm going to tell you, see, again, you got to get into, like, people think if there was no state, there'd be no rules. If there was no state, then there would be some private organization that would say, this person is qualified as a doctor. And there might be other organizations compete and Say this person is qualified as a doctor. Those organizations are probably going to require some level of legal coverage, uh, liability coverage, because they're, you know, backing up the doctor. Now, what the where all of this comes together is the state has created such a system of bureaucracy and litigation that the insurance is not fairly priced, because you can get sued at the drop of a hat. You can lose at the drop of a hat. There's a mile-long court system. So what would happen in a stateless society, or at least even a minarchist society, is that whole process would be streamlined through systems of arbitration, and the insurances would still exist. They would just be lower. So in that respect, the portion of the insurance that's inflated over what should be a fair market value is a neo-fascist tax being funneled by government into the coffers of industry. Okay. However, it's, it's not really as beneficial to the corporatocracy as you'd think it is. They're charging that much because that's how much they have to charge to make money. And this brings us to the crux of the problem with insurance in America today. What people want for health insurance is they want to spend $100 a month and have everything covered. Like buying car insurance that pays for your gas and your oil changes, and uh, somebody will wax your car, you know, three times a year. And uh, if any dents or dings or anything happens to you, you don't even have to deduct it's all covered. And if your car is totaled, rather than accepting that your car is totaled, that they will completely rebuild your car from the ground up rather than total it out and pay you a disposed value. That's what people want when they look at. Well, people want health insurance. They want $10 copays at the doctor, $5 copays for all prescriptions. They want I mean and, and and they you know you can't you can't run insurance like that and not have the company running it go out of business. It's going to happen. You're going to go out of business that way. And if you think you can run an insurance company like that, go ahead and, go ahead and do it. So, when government said you have to cover this, you have to cover that, you have to cover pre-existing conditions. You have to have to have to have to have to, have to. Um, what occurs then is that it artificially inflates the cost of insurance for everybody so that the people with no money can have cheap insurance that covers everything. And therefore, again, we're back to it being a tax. But, but that's how that all works. So not all insurance I would qualify, though, as being a tax. Um, if you choose to get dental and vision insurance, it's not a tax. It's not a tax. There's no law. There's no requirement. There's no, and that's why they're actually both very affordable in regard to what they cover. Look into it. It's not expensive. Um, If I have insurance on my business, because I don't want it. If I get sued, I don't want it to ruin my business. That's not a tax. That's not a tax. Now again, the litigious society that we live in where it's so freaking easy to sue somebody over bullshit, is why that added portion, I would say, if that makes sense. So I guess my big takeaway for everybody here is, if you got rid of the state tomorrow through some miracle, things like insurance wouldn't go away. And the problems that exist that insurance covers wouldn't go away. And for God's sakes, if you drive over somebody and and you put them in a wheelchair for the rest of their life, you're liable for that. You did that. It's your fault. You need to make restitution. And knowing that as a responsible adult with a product like insurance in existence, you should cover yourself in case it happens. But where we go into problems is I'll, I'll give you a couple examples that I learned in a, a law class that I had back in high school when schools actually used to teach useful things to kids in school. Two examples of You know, where you can clearly see that at minimum we need tort reform. So one was this guy, this is in the 80s, he climbs up on this guy's roof. And he wants to rob the house. And he comes up with this genius idea that he's going to go up on the roof and he's going to case the house by looking through the skylight. Make sure nobody's home, that it's a good time to break in the house. And, 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 and actually, I think from what I remember, it was also like basically saying, hey, is it worth breaking into this house? Because the curtains were all drawn and all he couldn't see in the house. So he climbs up on the roof. and He climbs onto the skylight. He looks in, and you know what happens. K-Bosh. The skylight breaks, and, and the frame breaks out of it and collapses. The guy falls through the roof and hits the floor. He ends up seriously injured, and he ends up paralyzed from the waist down. Okay, but this is a scumbag trying to rob the guy's house on the roof of his private property. It turned out that the homeowner, the homeowner had self installed the skylight and had done it not to code. And the belief was that had it been done properly, when the guy put his hands on it and leaned on it, it would not have failed. Therefore, he wouldn't have fallen on the floor. And the court actually found in favor. Of the criminal who sued because the skylight represented a, a a danger, an inherent danger, and that danger injured him, even though he was engaged in criminal activity. There's one. Another one. There was a guy that had a, like a classic car, all chromed up and stuff. Some kid in the neighborhood. And it's terrible that this happened. Ended up opening up the gas can and trying to see into it, and when he couldn't see into it, he didn't know what it was. He went back home. He got a big lighter. He lit it, and no, the car didn't blow up or whatever. But you know what? It, this has been open for a while. The vapor is coming out of the car. It's built up. The kid puts the lighter. He gets very severe burns on his face. Now, I, I, I feel. Now, I don't feel bad for the guy that fell through the skylight. I feel terrible for the kid, and I feel terrible for the kid's parents that they had to watch their kid go through second and third degree burns, right? And it, I feel grateful that it wasn't worse. Like the kid didn't like stick a rag down in there and wipe himself with it like he just got a flash burn. But I feel terrible for the kid. But I do not believe the man that owned the car is responsible for this kid, but under what's called the Attractive Nuisance Law. The, 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 the parents of this child sued the owner of the car under the assertion that since the, the car would be attractive to children... And the gas, because it was all shiny, and the, the gas cap was removable. Instead of using a locking gas cap, he was, and the court found in favor of the parents and, and awarded to these the, 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 them uh, medical bills and pain and suffering and what have you. Okay, see, that makes insurance a tax. It's not so much the insurance itself. It's the legal system that allows parasitism on the insurance, uh, on the insurance uh, industry. And it's why we have, see, like, we'll, tell, we'll go back to health insurance a second. We don't have a problem with health insurance in this country. That's not the problem. I know a lot of you, I just lost you. I've, I, I've held you in, 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 in my words for eight years and 11 and a half months. And for the first time, I've lost you because I must have lost my mind when I say we don't have a health insurance problem in this country. We don't. We don't. Hear me out. We have a cost of care problem in this country. The problem isn't insurance. It's the cost of care. It's somebody that goes to the ER for four hours and comes out with a $5,000 bill. There's no possible way that makes any sense. It's someone going through neurological pain like my wife was recently due to shingles. And the doctor said, you should take Lyrica. And when we priced it for a month of Lyrica with insurance... It was over $600. There's no way that makes sense. By the way, she didn't take the Lyrica. She went on a drug called Neurotin. She didn't use it for a month. She used it just enough to get through the situation. She didn't like the way it affected her. We priced the Lyrica just to know. $500 for a 30-day supply? This This is the problem. And the insurance is expensive directly as a reflection of the cost of care. Here's the crazy thing. The cost of care is high because of insurance. Because the insurance companies pay less, it's all set up as a scam. So the 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 hospital needs to bill five hundred dollars, so they can get two hundred dollars from the insurance company. So the cash-paying patient has to pay five hundred dollars, and the state has enabled this because there's no way, there's no way in a, 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 a situation with light regulation, let alone no regulation, that that would ever be possible. Insurance companies would have to ap- operate more efficiently, offer a wider array of, array of choices, offer a lot more things that cover catastrophic loss rather than day-to-day care, and then the medical industry would have to actually compete to get patients to buy their shit. So you wouldn't be paying $2,500 for a freaking CAT scan. So some adult to sit there and go, okay, it's done. Yeah, yeah, there's a lump. I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. What And then the guy that's running a catch game machine, I'm going to put him down. He doesn't make shit compared to what they bill for it. It's all bullshit. And you've been lied to. So yes, insurance can be a form of tax, or the delta in insurance that shouldn't be there can be the form of tax. I think most people want health insurance. I think most people are willing to pay something for health insurance. But I don't think people, most people want the health insurance they have and I don't think they want to pay as much for it as they're paying, and they would be much happier paying less money for insurance that only covered major things. And we have a marketplace that's taken that option away. That's what makes it a tax, if that makes sense. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I tried to cover a wide variety of things for you with the expert council this week. Uh, I hope you enjoyed having our newest expert council member, Nicole Awesome Sauce, with us with her home run out of the park first time at bat. And I hope you enjoyed all the rest of the council members. Remember to send in a sh- uh, question for a council member. You can go by the survivalpodcast.com, go to the About tab, and look up Meet the Expert Council. See all the council members that are there. Send your email to me, TSP it's with TSPC Expert in the subject line. Tell me who your question's for. Give me your question. Do it like this: bottom line up front, short question, one sentence. Hit enter, 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 and then give me your details. All right. That's, that's how you do this and get the question through. And then you know what you're asking so the expert council member knows what you're asking. Because when people throw out a bunch of details, they never seem to actually get to the bottom line question. And it's confusing and it doesn't get through screening. So I'm trying to help you out with that. On another note. If you like commenting on the blog, I love reading your comments, even when I don't agree with them, unless they're, well, we had some recently ones that I would call mind-numbingly stupid, but those are very rare. But I'll tell you what I don't like doing, and I don't think anybody on the internet likes doing, this includes Facebook or anywhere that you leave comments. Please trust me, I am a professional when it comes to multimedia. After you write two or three sentences, there's a key called the return key. Learn to use it. Don't worry about, like, your grammar teacher telling you where a paragraph starts and where a paragraph ends. Just put a break every two to three sentences in comments, and then people can actually read them instead of this one massive block of text. I know what you're thinking. Jack, when I comment on Facebook, if I hit return, if I've hit return, it it, it, it posts. Uh Hit Control, and then hit Enter. Control, Enter, and it will allow you to put breaks in your comments on Facebook. Just a little tip from Jack on some netiquette. Because when you're making a comment, this is what I figured: you want people to read it. Try reading those massive blocks of text. You can't do it. Your mind goes, this hurts. This hurts. And a lot of times you're making comments for people that disagree with you. And if you give it to them in small bites, maybe they'll take it in and consider your side of the story. Just a little extra help here at the end. Next up, of course, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. tspaz.com, you go there, you can see things like the Amazon item of the day that I review, and you can get on over to Amazon and see their deals today, the because they have some cool stuff over there from time to time. But if you want to know the deal of the day, for, or the item of the day for me, uh, you can click on the link there and you can see all of my reviews. It will pull up the most recent 10. Today I have one for you, it's dead simple thing. And not a lot of, not every one of you gonna, are going to need this, but those of you that, that deal with this problem are going to be like, is that simple to fix it? These are made by a company called Saxony. They are one foot extension power cables. You can get a five pack for $10.44. So they're about two bucks a feet. Yeah, they're extension cords that are one foot long. What the hell would you do with a one foot extension cord? Okay, you know how under your desk there's this power strip that has like eight, plugs, but there's like three things plugged into it. Cause like the thing for your speakers has a big giant honking adapter and that takes up like three spots. And then the power adapter for your, 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 uh, your router takes up like two. So then you have to daisy chain another one. Yeah. Right. You know, anything that you plug into a plug and it, it covers the other outlet, you take this little one foot cord, you plug that big honking adapter into the female side. You plug to the male side into your power strip or your outlet. And you leave all the rest of the outlets available. Because, like, you're probably, if you're smart and you still run a desktop PC, you're probably running a UPS. And, like, that's the whole point is to have everything running off different ports on that UPS so that phew, the power goes out, you have time to save everything and shut down, and you don't lose all your work. Yeah? Okay. Then you need access to those ports. You start daisy chaining five freaking U.S. uh, five uh, power strips together—it's just foolish. This cleans everything up, keeps room. There's when you have something new that needs to be plugged in. There's actually a place to plug it in for ten bucks. Come on. Again, Saxony One Foot Extension Power Cables. Find it at TSPAS. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and start scrolling, and you'll see a lot of the stuff that we've reviewed. Remember, whenever you're looking at my reviews, you can always look down at the bottom and see the tags. You'll see one that says Amazon item of the day. It pulls them all up. But you'll see, like in this one, it'll say Electronics AZ. If you click that tag, it'll pull up all the things I've ever reviewed on Amazon that I've put that tag on. And that kind of breaks things down into categories for you, so you can see things uh, that I'm recommending. And that applies to all the reviews. They all have those tags like that. Lots of cool stuff TSPAS.com, and whenever you do your online shopping at TSPAS, you help support the survival podcast.com. All right, last for you today, I've got the song of the day. The song of the day today is called Inside of Me by Three Doors Down. I actually really like Three Doors Down. I like the style of their music. I like the sound of their music. I, I like a lot about Three Doors Down, and uh, this song I really like as well. It's one of the few like new songs because we're up to 2015 now, right? New song, or new 20 yeah 20 2016. Uh, one of the few new songs that I actually really like. I, uh, new songs I'm few and far between on. John Adam, who's been uh, selecting these songs for like the last 30 episodes, 35, 40 episodes for us now, says about this song of 2016, Three Doors Down Inside of Me. To me, this is talking about finding your passion in life. That's certainly something we talk about here at the Survival Podcast. And he's dead on. And I, I couldn't think of a better song for a Friday. Certainly the the type of song this is, this inspiring kind of get-up-and-kick-lifes-ass song. is just great for a Friday with that weekend ahead of you we talked about a few times. Let me give you the lyrics here. You have a little breakdown on it. Always waiting for something, searching for one thing, and I know it has to be there somewhere. All this room without knowing the way this is going, as long as it takes me anywhere. There's life and there's one dance There's fate, and there's one chance to find out who I want to be and know it's inside of me. You are your own answer, guys. That's what that's saying. And it's hard to find sometimes. But, you know, this is like what I've always always advised my son. He said, well, I don't know what to do next. Do something. Do something better than what you have right now. I don't know what I want to do in life. Go make a dollar an hour extra. Go take on one side hustle. Go do one thing. It probably won't be the thing, but do something. Make a decision. Make a choice. Go do something. Because it will lead you to another step. Then you say, okay, I am a little better off now. Okay, how can I do better than this for myself and my family and my future? And you do that one thing. And if you happen to do one thing and you go, well, shit. This has actually made things worse. Stop doing that, dummy. Right? It's that simple. A little more lyric action here. I look to the far side, searching for daylight, something that is mine, all my own, something that is yours. Man, I've been trying to teach you guys that for nine years. And loving in hindsight, that won't work for my life, let me forget all that went wrong. Look, if you're not in jail for the mistakes of the past, go apologize for them and move on with your freaking life. If you're in jail for the the mistakes of your past, clean your shit up, get out of jail, and go on with your life. No matter how hard it is, and now it's going to be harder, yes. But do it anyway. Forget all that went wrong other than the lessons that come from it. Okay? There's life and there's one dance. There's fate and there's one chance to find out who I want to be and I know it's inside of me. There's love and so much more that waits behind that door. There's so much that I want to see, and I know it's inside of me. It's inside of me. Oh, it's inside of me. Well, folks, it's inside of you. That one thing that will eventually be the thing is inside of you. That one person that you're looking for, who they are is inside of you. You just have to find the person that matches that spot in your heart the one thing that's going to be your contribution to the world that's going to be amazing, the one thing that when it really comes down to it and, and, and your family's at risk and you're going to see them through, it's, inside, it's all you. It's all freaking you. It always was you. It's always going to be you. There is no excuse outside of yourself. There's no excuses, period. There's reasons and there's reality. And remember this about life, folks. When it comes to professionalism, You can make excuses, or you can make money, but you can't do both. When it comes to life, you can make an impact, or you can make excuses, but you can't do both. When it comes to being a parent, you can be a good influence and a guiding hand for that young person, and you can get that done, or you can make excuses, but you can't do both. When you're given a mission, you can accomplish it or you can do all you can in that attempt to accomplish it and get whatever you can done, do that, or you can make excuses, but you damn well can't do both. The world as you want it to be is inside of you. Go out, kick ass, take names this weekend, make it freaking happen. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
0: Always waiting for something. Searching for one thing. And I know it has to be there Some. Go without knowing where this is going as long as it takes me.